Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and this is your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And I'm going to let you know that today's show is going to be packed full of exciting news and also some home improvement on Kevin's side. So, <laughs> Not really smart home improvement, although I do have a new Z-Wave lock going in my front door. We're replacing the front door as we speak right now due to rotted wood frames and whatnot. But yeah, sorry. So there may be a little background noise, but bear with us because Kevin is totally worth it. All right. So here we go. Today, we're going to talk about Samsung's new voice assistant. We're going to talk about a misstep by Google's voice assistant on the home. Um, We've got some news about the Amazon Echo. And then we're moving out of the assistant territory. We're going to talk about what happens to Zonoff, a company that was bought well, it wasn't bought. We'll talk about it. And Arm has some news. They bought an MBIOT company and they introduced a new architecture. So whoop, whoop. And finally, we'll end it with some smart things news because there's lots of it. All right. This week, we have an awesome sponsor in Samsung, Arctic. We also have Vint Surf as our guest. Woohoo! And, now, and I'm, I'm not I'm not saying that just because he's a Google employee, by the way. Yeah, I, I kind of don't know what to call Vint. You know, he's he's one of the fathers of the Internet. He's also an evangelist from Google. And he's the architect of the Matrix. There we go. That's what we'll call Vint. All right. So before you get to him, you got to go through us. So let's get this show started with a message from this week's sponsor. This week's sponsor is Wolf SSL. The world's top five industrial automation companies use Wolf SSL to secure everything from factory floor devices to their power meters, and they are not alone. Wolf SSL secures 2 billion connections across a multitude of IoT sectors, including automotive, connected home, industrial, military, and medical devices. With the Mirai botnet and the growing threat of ransomware attacks on the Internet of Things, companies have to pay attention to security or risk litigation, bad PR, and their brand value. Securing the IoT is hard, but Wolf SSL has the experience and specialized expertise to help. Shouldn't you be using Wolf SSL? To find out more, visit wolfssl.com. Okay, Kevin, shall we get it started with things that talk? Bruce Sterling came on the show a couple weeks back and he called these talking donkeys. (laughs) And I kind of like the name. He's like, you know, his idea was that they don't do much. I don't know if it was that they're stubborn. Now now I can't remember exactly why he called them talking donkeys, but I really did like the phrase. So I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, there's been a big push for voice assistance, obviously, since uh, I'd say since Siri started, although you can go all the way back to like Windows CE days or Pocket PC when Microsoft had voice actions on PDAs. At that time, the tech wasn't there for natural language processing. You had to literally record yourself saying a command and then assign a command to that recording. But oh, I nowadays, that. yeah, those oh, were the days, right? Sure, yeah, yeah. But now it's obviously much better because we do have natural language processing. We've got Siri, we've got Google Assistant, you've got Echo devices. There's lots of voice interfaces. I keep coming back to it being the invisible interface. It's something that works for everybody uh, by and large. Now Samsung wants to get in on the game, although it's really, I'd say, a second attempt because they already had S-Voice, which was their version of a you know, phone assistant. Um, but now they've got Bixby. And 
Bixby isn't quite what I expected it to be. I don't know what you thought, but what did you think? Are you surprised by what Bixby is? I wasn't actually surprised because Bixby, one, I really like the name. It makes me think of like some friendly alien or something. Oh, Bixby or a puppy. But what it does and kind of reminded me of was the fact that Samsung bought Viv, which was created by the guys who actually did Siri. When you talk to the guys who created Viv, they were thinking about building this kind of back-end infrastructure to help applications talk to each other. Mm-hmm. So having something that basically, it kind of reminded me of Google Assistant that you could, that ties things together via mm-hmm. your voice felt like it made a lot of sense to me. Yes, it looks like it will do that. It looks like it will also kind of uh, take over some of the touchscreen interface that we've gotten used to over the last 10 years. So that way, anything you could do by touching a, a control or a button on your phone or an app, whatever it might be, you should theoretically be able to do with Bixby via voice. So there's an interface aspect of it. There's also what you had talked about, which is the getting apps to talk to each other, which I think developers will actually have to kind of enable, but I, I don't, I haven't seen technical details yet. But it seems more interfacey to me than AI to me. Ah, as opposed to conversational or kind of the Google Contextual. Assistant. Yeah, yeah. It seems, I mean, you can have an assistant that does things that or gets information, contextual information, right time, right place. So that's what I think of more often with assistant. But you could also say an assistant will help you interact with an app or apps. And it seems like it's maybe a bit of both, but I think more more the latter. Yes. And that makes sense. Because that, that was the expertise they bought. It wasn't about like having a conversation. And in that in that way, I mean, I think Google is probably the farthest ahead on the more conversational and assistant level stuff. But it doesn't have kind of the chops on the controlling a variety of things side. Mm-hmm. Yet. That's fair. Yep. So Samsung went the other way. And I, I can't blame it, honestly. Oh, we should note something here. Kevin. What's that? Kevin oh. works for Google. Yes, yes. I don't work on the IoT team, but I do uh, work as a consultant uh, for Android and Chrome Enterprise type things. So, yes. So my, my opinions are my own. Yes. And, you know, he probably won't say anything terribly nasty about the Android Enterprise <laughs> divisions. Okay. Hopefully I won't say anything about it because that's not part of the show. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a little bit of a non sequitur. Um, all right. So that's Samsung Bixby. We'll find out more because it's next week that they're going to announce the... Or show yeah. off the phone, the S8, correct. I believe. The alleged S8. I can neither confirm yes. nor deny. <laughs> but that's correct. So Samsung is having an event. Might be multiple locations. I do know that they're having an event in New York City. I think it's the 28th. Might be Wednesday of next week. So unfortunately, it'll be right around the time we record our, our weekly show. So we'll have to maybe put off talking about that until the following week. Ah, that gives us more time to talk to it and see. Yeah. Okay, so that's talking donkey number one. Talking donkey number two is the Amazon Echo now is part of your phone. Finally. And to be honest, I mean, we've already heard that some phones will have Echo integration built in, such as the Huawei, might be the Mate 9, Mate 10. Um, that was announced at CES. I don't believe they've implemented that yet. And I guess that's to take the place of Google Assistant. We'll give you the option. But this is actually Amazon itself, not a hardware partner. Amazon itself saying, hey, we put Echo Smarts into your phone. 
the strange thing to me is they put it in the Amazon shopping app, which makes sense if you want to track orders by voice or order things. But if you want general information, like right before the show, I used it to get the weather and it worked fine. But I had to go into the Amazon shopping app. So why not just just have it in the app that has her name? I have like a dozen Amazon apps on my phone. I have the let's see. Let's try calling her Madam A. So the Madam A app. I have the Amazon Kindle app, the music app, the Now app. I don't think I have the shopping app. How is that what? even possible? That's, 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 that's I just have the music sacrilegious. app. <laughs> that's just wrong. That's just wrong. Okay, so I, I, get, I see where you're going. I get it. I have multiple Amazon apps as well. Just put it in all the apps. They're all going back to the same servers. I mean, yeah. you know, make it contextual in that I want to check shopping stuff via voice. Okay, I'm going to go to the shopping app. You know, I want to control smart home things with voice. Put it into the one that does that. I mean, I want to control music through Amazon Prime Music. Put it in the app that does that. Well, I don't understand why it's all in the shopping app. It just seems silly to me. It, no, I'm with you. Well, and it's also very confusing because, like, I was yeah. looking for this and I was like, I don't, I can't find it. I don't have it. So if you're looking for this, the Amazon shopping app, which if you're like me, maybe you haven't downloaded it. Go download it so you can talk to Madam A on your phone. I'm kind of liking this Madam A thing. Yeah. Okay. Next up, Google. Google this week, actually, it may have been last week, on their Google Home device had kind of a, I'm going to call it a misstep because it feels pretty intrusive. What they did is as part of people's daily briefing that you can get that tells you you're like weather, traffic, it's basically like your your morning radio kind of thing on mm-hmm. the Google Home. They inserted an ad for Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. The new movie, the live action Beauty and the Beast movie. What's really crazy is when someone called them about it, because somebody posted it on Twitter, Google decided that it wasn't an ad. <laughs> correct. Correct. So you're right. It was part of the My Day feature, which kind of summarizes everything for you whenever you ask. And it, it kind of it went at the very end. It was a literally this is the text that was spoken. By the way, <laughs> Disney's live action Beauty and the Beast opens today and it shares a little bit of information about the movie. I mean, I guess I see bo- I see both sides of it, clearly. Um, if I'm a user and I do not own a Google Home, I have four Echoes. That's the route I went for various reasons, uh, just better support of the products I use. It's going to sound like an ad, without a doubt. Google says wasn't intended to be an ad. It was just trying to provide some helpful information about your day and was timely content. Uh, yeah, I mean, if it's not clear to the users, then you got to question the decision to do it, I think. Well, one... Baseline thing, right? Did money change hands? Don't know. So nobody knows. Google has not said. Disney has not said. So that's the first question, right? Because the FTC is mm-hmm. going to, I mean, even even if users hadn't complained, eventually the FTC would be like, what are you doing? But two, I think this shows a couple things. One, it shows that dealing with ads in a voice-assisted world is going to be really hairy. One, it's going to annoy people if it's not done well. But if it's done too well, I think the FTC is going to be like, oh, Mm -hmm. did you really think you were serving helpful content or was it sponsored? Kind of like they do with Instagram posts by famous celebrities. Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's a there's a very fine line there. It needs to be clear to users whether, as you said, you know, it's sponsored, money changed hands. Basically, is this an, an ad or is this not an ad? Right? It needs to be clear to end users. 
And I will say that there are ways like, I, I'm sure you guys don't necessarily remember this, but when the Harry Potter Fantastic Beasts movie came out, Google actually did, and I think it still works. You could say Lumos, you could say, hey, G, Lumos, and your phone flashlight would turn on. Right. And yep. that Lumos, by the way, for those of you guys who are not Harry Potter fans, <laughs> is how you make a light in Harry Potter world. So, with magic. With magic. With magic right. We should be very clear here. We don't want people thinking they can actually do this. It's magic, people. But you can actually do it on your Google phone. True. So I thought that was really fun. It was clever. And I assume money changed hands. I mean, it felt kind of marketing, but it felt like something, A, a user opted into, and B, I guess, mostly that it felt like something a user opted into. So I guess... That's the first point. You can make mm -hmm. clever ads, and I think we're going to have to see how that gets done for voice. Two, this I really think Google needs to think about switching from an ad-based company to a product company. Mm. And I say this, or rather a services company, and I say this because Google's ad revenue comes from the web predominantly, and we're going to stop looking so much at the web. And when it goes into a world where data matters and services matter, I think it should really start to position itself not as an ad company because people don't trust ad companies. Mm -hmm. And you're not saying anything that many analysts haven't said in the past. I mean, that's something that... Wait, I'm an not an original thinker? <laughs> and I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that a lot of people agree. And the fact is, as you said, a lot of those ads come over the web and now... The web is, it's bigger than just something in a browser. The data from the web is coming through devices, through uh, devices, not just phones, smartphones, et cetera, but wearable devices, home assistants, connected ovens. I mean, there's so many more places that the web is touching, right? So now it becomes, uh, do you want to see ads on all those things? There's a whole mindset that needs to be figured out here. You know, the traditional old ad model will not work in a connected, truly connected world with multiple screens or other interfaces such as voice. Yeah. And having that data that Google has means it could provide super, super valuable services. And I guess maybe maybe the next step then is how to monetize those well. Ads for Beauty and the Beast at the end of my day is probably not the way to do it. So keep thinking, you guys. Keep thinking. Okay, let's move on to oh one really quick verbal We'll throw this in the audio category. Um, I'll link to this in the show notes, but somebody made a a smart home that was controlled by an ocarina, which is that weird, how would you, is it a pipe? Yeah, I guess it's an instrument. It's, it's uh, an electronic it, instrument, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be electronic. I mean, in, in the Zelda games, it's not electronic, but I don't think they have electricity there. No, no, they don't. So he basically created a smart home that was controlled by an ocarina um, because he is a huge Legend of Zelda fan. And he basically built, he put a microphone on a Raspberry Pi, and when he plays an ocarina, certain sound phrases trigger certain things to happen with Wi-Fi controlled devices in his house. And he built all these himself. So this is not something... Yeah, you're not going to go buy this. But how fun was that? And... Talk about an interesting marketing opportunity that kind of ties in actually what we're saying with Google and, you know, opportunities to tie into movies and products, mm. you know, with 
maybe smart things and different commands. And remember how when I got back from Harry Potter World and I was so sad that I couldn't use my wand to like control things? I was going to bring that up because there you go. There's a perfect do-it-yourself. Just point at certain smart home devices and have them go on or go off with the wand. You know, you could do that. You know, I can't because it's the wand has, it's not NFC. I think it's a... IR maybe. I think it's not IR because that requires, I think it's RFID. Ah, but it's proprietary, whatever it of is. Of course it is. Now, I could like tape an accelerometer and, and figure yeah. out the gestures, but that, that gets really complicated. And my wand would be ugly. Yeah. So, okay. Can't have that. Can't have that. So, so think about that, marketing folks. There might be some fun to be had there. All right. Let's talk about ARM because there are two things, one of which has more relation to the IoT than others. So last month, ARM acquired two companies that provide NB IoT technology. And for those of you guys who are like, well, what? NB IoT is one of the low power wide area networks. So basically you can send small signals, small amounts of data over huge areas. The cool thing about NB IoT is that it's cellular. So all of the cellular companies are looking at this in AT&T, Verizon, Orange, etc. So everybody's looking at this to provide like, let your sensors and your smoke detectors talk to the cellular network and get data. But it's cheaper. You're mentioning cellular. Have they changed the name of NB IoT to, I want to say LTE, NB1? Oh, so there's two versions. Oh, of course there is. Bear with us. There's NB-IoT, and then yeah. there's LTE Cat1M. Okay. NB-IoT is the download speeds are 250 kilobits per second. Um, and Uplink is also 250 kilobits per mm-hmm. second. And kilobits, y'all, very, very, very Very small. small. Yeah, like it'll tell you a device state or something like yeah. that. I mean, this is, we're talking small bits of information. It's on, off, and really low power. And LTE Cat M1 is one megabit per second up and down. So that's, it's not video, but maybe it's something a little bit more steady state, bigger packets, more packets. Little bit different there, both incredibly low power, both designed to go over wide areas, both going to be implemented by carriers in a lot of ways. And we're still waiting for pricing from AT&T and Verizon for both of these networks. Gotcha. So ARM purchased two companies then. Two companies. They are NextGcom. They do an MBI IoT software and mm-hmm. Mistbase, which does the actual chip, the physical layer. So the lowest part in the stack that does the radio stuff. So together, these two basically give ARM the ability to design in NBIoT. This matters because there's also a bunch of other standards out there in the low-power wide area network world, which like LoRa, Mm -hmm. which we talk about all the time on the show. There's things like Sigfox, and there's other proprietary things like Ingenue. I think Waitlist is still floating around out there. Mm -hmm. So the idea here is NBIoT, it's got the backing of the cellular carriers. If they come up with a business model, it looks like ARM is like, yeah, we're going to support that. I, I was just going to say, I mean, nothing against the competing standards and product makers, but ARM already has such a big footprint in the mobile industry. It's got the backing of practically everybody. Um, if anybody can push towards fewer standards, I would think it would be an ARM. Yes. And then there's other ARM news out there. Big news, but I think it's big news. Kevin's not so sure. So 
<laughs> we'll tell you what it is. Arm introduced yeah. dynamic, and that's like it's got a super. The last IQ. That's not even how the you last, spell. Yeah, that's not even how letters. you spell dynamic. Oh my gosh. <laughs> no, the last two letters of the word dynamic in their branding is IQ, and they're basically they're saying that we're expanding possibilities for artificial intelligence. Hmm. Tell me why you think this is a big deal. Maybe you'll convince me. Okay. So what they've done here is ARM has actually changed its architecture. So they have redesigned the way they're going to make their Cortex-A cores. And these are their bigger, fatter, meatier cores for smartphones, for servers. Higher performance. Yes. Not the M class, which is what, you know, might be in your wearable devices. So shove all that M stuff aside. Think A. So what they've done is they've, the architecture they've chosen is going to let you run eight different cores in a cluster that are all going to be able to run at different clock speeds. So different frequencies. So you can have one that's like super high power, like 1.2 gigahertz going chugging full out. And then you could have one, you know, at 500 gigahertz that's like only waking up to like listen for a voice command or something and dropping back to sleep. All right. So I'm going to stop you there and ask a question. To me, it, that does not seem very different from their big little architecture. And they, they have already had multiple core A processors running at different speeds. Yes. So big little was introduced in 2011. That was their last mm-hmm. big architecture. Shift. Right, right. And what that does is it paired a big core, like the massive powerful one with a little core, less powerful, and the big core would handle like mobile phones and stuff like that. So the difference here is, and this feels very slight, is with big little, you had one that was on or off and the other that was on or off, but you couldn't choose like different frequencies for them. So you couldn't throttle them based on the performance load required. Yes. And also you could only put four of them in a cluster. So now you can put eight (laughs) and you can individualize Every single one. So you could actually have all eight little cores if you wanted. So I think the the cores in the Cortex-A's now do throttle based on performance load. I could be wrong. I'll give you some more things that are part of this. Um, Because now we're getting, I'm like, oh. So ARM didn't actually give a whole lot of technical nitty gritty detail. We're going to see that later when they actually introduce a new Cortex design with this architecture later this year. But they also did two more things that are worth mentioning. And then we can get back to your question. They changed it. So the bus now works with an accelerator much faster. Mm -hmm. And they also added some, and this is real nebulous. They were like, "Uh, and we added some resiliency things. So it works for automotive and robotics. And I don't know if you remember, they actually introduced a core last year, a core, I think was the a 57 or the a 53 that was more resilient and designed for these kind of industrial situations. But they're also changing the instruction set. And this gets into the AI stuff. They're adding some instructions to the instruction set to make it work better for artificial intelligence. That is the final amount of information <laughs> they have showed us. Right. This was more of a press release than a product launch, so, which is fine. I had no issue with that. It just seems very evolutionary to me in that, as we said, big little architecture, which was a big step forward uh, back in 2011. This just seems like, again, maybe a half step forward on that. And really, it's yes, there are new instruction sets that will help with AI. I don't know what those instructions will be and, and what they will bring us. We will see. But 
I mean, it's almost like we're taking our old architecture, we're gonna adjust a little bit and say, now you can use it for AI. I'm just not, I guess I'll wait and see what hardware manufacturers do with this, just to see how much of a big deal this really is. But again, it seems very evolutionary to me. This will end up more in phones. It does feel kind of evolutionary. I can see why you think that. I think we'll see it first in phones, because you can actually dedicate a lot of tasks to specific processors in a way that I think would be compelling. So the other thing it'll be good for is networking on the on the networking side, because you could really amp up your networking. And because you're dealing with so much many, so many more flows of information, we're going to see the accelerator side of that also come in pretty handy, I think. Mm-hmm. So that is the arm news. We will wait and see what cortex comes <laughs> of this. Um, and we'll move on from the deeply nerdy to the deeply sad. All right. Last week, I broke a story on Zonoff, which is the company that does software integration for lots of other companies, including the Staples Connect Home that is now defunct, uh, the Somfy Tacoma Home Automation stuff, mm-hmm. and several like common products out there. So Zonoff, I had heard that they had been for sale for a little while, and Basically, a a deal had fallen through. Honeywell was one of the potential acquirers that they were in talks with, and and that did not happen. But after a deal to buy them fell through, Ring, the maker of a connected doorbell, basically said, hold up, we'll extend everyone who works at Zonoff a job offer. Hmm. And most everybody at Zonoff actually took it. And Zonoff's former CEO, Mike Harris, has confirmed to me that he is now a head of the Ring Philadelphia office, which now exists, didn't before. So, <laughs> Yeah, because Zonoff was in my backyard in Malvern, if I recall correctly. They were, Malvern, Pennsylvania. I'm just calling mm-hmm. it Philadelphia because it's... Oh, so is that where the Ring Philadelphia office is? That's, it's a Philadelphia suburb, that's why so I So it doesn't exist yet. Ba-ba. They're hmm. by, They're finding office space. Presumably right now for the 80 or so, the 70 to 80 Zonoff employees that are now going to work at Ring. Hmm. So really interesting story. Really cool that Ring came in and offered these people jobs and really cool that they all wanted to stay together and take it because, you know, people who understand device integration, which is what Zonoff does, that's actually a pretty valuable skill right now. (laughs) Yeah. They could have found jobs elsewhere. And so this feels like... Good news for Ring and the people who used to work at Zonoff. My big question is, what mm. happened to Zonoff? Which is what I don't know. I feel like there's still an asset out there. They still have products like Zonoff was still supporting all of the people who still have Staples Connect devices. Mm-hmm. And no one from Zonoff, no one from its investors has called me, or rather I've called them and they haven't returned any of my calls. So I I don't actually know what happens to those customers that rely on Zonoff support. That's a good question. And as I mean, as you alluded to, the Staples Home Connect is kind of defunct. So I mean, those people are already in the lurch. I don't know what's really going on there. Well, Zonoff uh, said they would support it for. Yeah. Now, will they continue to do that? That's going to be up to Ring, I suppose. I uh, know it'll be up to Zonoff because Ring only hired people. They didn't oh. get IP. So who's left at Zonoff is the question to actually make those decisions and or support these things. So everyone at Zonoff got a job at Ring. 
So who's left at Zonoff? <laughs> so I think what's left at Zonoff might be the right question. Now, not everybody took the ring job, but it sounds like everybody, the people who didn't aren't working at Zonoff anymore. So mm. I've been trawling Pacer to find out if there has been a bankruptcy. So we'll see. <laughs> mm-hmm. That is an open question. If any of you guys want to tell us what's happening, feel free to to drop us a line because you know some i used to love the staples connect i thought it was the best home hub out there for a really long time because it was user-friendly it had a lot of integrations that were interesting i like the display because the display is showing all the products that staples actually had put together through via zonoff because it showed people how these things interact in a very simple to understand way yeah so there's that news Finally, two bits of things for smart things. One, if you guys have gone into your smart things app lately, or if you're a new buyer for perhaps, discovery now is amazing. It just goes through your house. It goes through your house. The little hub walks through your house. No, um, it goes on your Wi-Fi network and it basically auto discovers anything on your Wi-Fi network, which for me was a lot of stuff, including my Sonosis. And where is it? Sonai. It's Sonosis. Remember? I know. I know. solved this debate. (laughs) (laughs) So it discovered all of that. It discovered just a bunch of stuff. It was really nice. So Discovery is way better on it. That's a brand new capability. And I finally got my smart things and Lutron thing to work. And I have to tell you that I apparently was the only one who had problems. (laughs) And it was not because of smart things. It was because I had a ghost Lutron hub on my network. What? I know. So Lutron went in and they're like, why do you have two bridges? I was like, I don't have two bridges. I only have one. They're like, in our network. Yes, you do. So here's what I think happened. Because I actually discovered that I have a phantom, we'll call it a phantom Logitech Harmony hub. I have a phantom Nest thermostat. Hmm. Uh Uh-huh. So I was like, as I discovered all of these weird phantom things in my accounts, I thought it might have to do with the fact that I took my Wi-Fi network offline and to test some new Wi-Fi networks, and then I brought it back on. And so I'm wondering if that process created alternative bridges. I have no idea how all these came about. The companies themselves don't know how all this came about. Hmm. So this this emphasizes how weird my house is. But now that I've tried the SmartThings Lutron integration, I can tell you that it is awesome. It hmm. is a cloud-to-cloud integration, and I was actually really worried about latency. And mm-hmm. I don't know what magic, black magic Lutron and SmartThings have done, but there is not noticeable latency in commanding my stuff from the app, through Google Home, and through the Amazon Echo. All of those hmm. work seemingly at the same speed, maybe a millisecond slower, but not so you'd be irritated. Hmm. Interesting that you mentioned latency because I didn't say I was going to do this on the last show, but I did do this between the last show and now I got a Wink Hub 2 and I noticed much less latency, which is very good. Um, no phantom devices for me. I was afraid that when I transferred all my stuff from the one to the other, it would create issues, but it did not. Oh yeah. That Wink transfer is really nice. Hmm. So what are you going to do with your old Wink? Because I have a Wink 1, and I don't know what to do with it. I have a teammate out in uh, Mountain View who wants to get into smart homes. I'm like, I'll just send you a Wink. Oh, there you go. Uh, I guess I could send someone a Wink. (laughs) 
Send somebody a wink. Send somebody a wink. Go for Uh, it. All right. I have a spare wink hub. Okay, we're going to do this for a week. Send me an email at info at iotpodcast.com. And if I get a bunch, I will do a random generator. I will randomly pick one of y'all. And you can have my old, this is wink version one hub. So if you want it, send me an email and we'll do it before next show. So actually, let's say do it before the end of the day on Monday night, which is March 27th. And then you too could have a wink one. Yay. That feels good. Let's do the guest. So Kevin, thank you. Everyone else. Stay tuned for Vint Surf talking about what the problems are with the Internet of Things and how he thinks that's going to work out. But first, a message from our sponsor. Hey, everyone, we are taking a break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Samsung Arctic. And I have Sarah Peach here from Samsung. And we're going to talk about what Samsung is doing in the industrial Internet. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Stacey. I'm so glad you're here today. So can you tell me what Samsung is doing in the industrial internet? Absolutely. Let me start by saying that Samsung is a very large manufacturer of connected products today. A lot of people know Samsung through the mobile phones, tablets, wearables, and many more connected products. So Samsung really is facing and understanding a lot of the challenges that other manufacturers have, trying to improve our productivity, reduce our downtime and deliver really high-quality connected products to some pretty demanding customers. So Samsung's a big manufacturer, and with our Arctic IoT platform, we're helping manufacturers like Samsung to get better insights into their productivity. We're also helping industrial OEMs to deliver connected products and connected services. Awesome. So you're practicing what you preach. From y'all's perspective, what does the future of manufacturing look like? Factories already create massive quantities of data, so that's not something that's new. I think the shift that we're going to see is more in the usage of that data. We're going to see that data being shared more effectively between applications uh, so that it's more useful and also shared with other parties, perhaps outside the factory, to enable efficiencies that haven't been delivered yet. And also we're going to see that data being shown or delivered down to the machines or to the people who really need it. And they're going to be getting that data when they need it most. So what are some common mistakes that you see people making as they try to add intelligence to their factories? Well, I think one challenge for all industrial IoT implementations is security. It's always a big concern for industrial customers, and it's important to design that security in from the outset rather than add it in as an afterthought. Security is a big issue. Also, are there demographic shifts that make automation in manufacturing pressing? In uh, manufacturing and production, particularly in the U.S., there's, there are a lot of very highly skilled and experienced workers who are going to be retiring. This problem is particularly challenging for petroleum engineers and for utility workers. Big fractions of those workforces are going to be retiring in the next five years or so. And with that big, what's called the great shift change, we're potentially going to lose a lot of intelligence and knowledge and expertise in industrial processes. And so we need to find ways of capturing this expertise. And one way to approach it is to collect more data and analyze that data more effectively to try and codify some of this knowledge. To find out more about Samsung's Arctic IoT platform and how it can help your IoT development strategy, go to www.arctic.io 
slash build or buy. That's arctic, A-R-T-I-K dot I-O slash build or buy. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham. And today I have with me Vince Cerf, one of the We'll just call him the father of the internet. One of the fathers of the internet here with me. So, hi, Vin. How are you doing? Well, right now I'm absorbing Austin rain unexpectedly. It always rains during South by at least one day before it turns beautiful again. Uh, Well, in that case, I don't feel like anybody dumped on me, but it's a pleasure to chat with you today. It is wonderful to talk to you. I'm really excited. So, let's just get it started with how do you define the internet of things? I think that uh, the most broad generalization would be anything that's programmable and perhaps something which also has communication capability. Now, this extends well beyond the classic sorts of appliances around the house and around the office or in the car or on your person. I even think of the fast trading systems on the stock exchange as a kind of Internet of Things because it's a piece of software that takes real-world input chews it up for a while, and then does something which has a real-world effect, like changes your brokerage account. So I have a very general notion of communicating software that that takes in real-world information and has an effect on the real world. For most people, however, it's a device that's programmable and can communicate. All right. And why would you say that this is a big deal right now for everyone? Well, perhaps the biggest deal about the Internet of Things is that uh, people are rushing to build products that have these characteristics, communication and computation, programmability. The trouble is they're not paying as much attention to uh, access control, security, privacy, safety, and frankly, autonomy, by which I mean ability to operate successfully, even if the Internet isn't available. What you don't want is your house doesn't work if the Internet isn't connected. That would not be a good design. That already happens to me on a daily basis when my internet bleeps out. So let's actually skip to architectures. What kind of underlying technologies do you think we need to think about for, I guess, scaling out this distributed intelligent network? Well, first of all, there has been, a, I would say, a, an apparent common choice to use the internet protocol as a, as a sort of a fundamental mechanism for moving data back and forth. IP version 6 is preferable because of its scale. But the underlying transmission systems could vary all over the lot, and they do. 6-low-pan, Wi-Fi, LTE, you can rattle off lots of different names, Bluetooth and Bluetooth low energy. So uh, we're going to see a proliferation of variation in the underlying transport mechanism, and that's okay because the IP protocol doesn't care. A more critical question is what happens above the IP layer? And here we also see a lot of variation among the producers of these devices. And we're probably going to see that variation for a while to come. I think it's important to achieve some standards, especially when we get up into the space of semantics. What can I tell a device? What can the device tell me? If I have to somehow manage an ensemble of devices that come from multiple uh, manufacturers, multiple brands, standardization is your friend here because then you can write applications that are consistent. If you have to write something different for every possible manufacturer's equipment, getting it right is going to be hard. Fixing things that don't work is going to be hard. Speaking of which, another big challenge is how long these devices are going to be in the field. How long will they be maintainable? 
Will the companies that made them go out of business and leave you with a house that doesn't work anymore? What if there's a bug in the software that causes either a malfunction or a breach of privacy or some other thing? Who's going to fix that? How will the software get downloaded into the device? How will the device know if it came from a legitimate source? How do we know if the update hasn't been uh, modified? You know, does it have integrity? There's, the list of questions is very long. And most people who are building these devices are not thinking so much about that. They're thinking about, I have an app and I have a device and that's it. End of story. And at some point, even the consumers are going to recognize that there is more needed than that. So right now at the kind of device communications level, we have standards like IOTivity. We used to have all join. Now we have dot dot. So that's that layer. Some of the other things that you were talking about, though, we really don't have a standards effort around them, to my knowledge. And I'm thinking of things like, I guess, authentication of a device all the way through the network or even being able to monitor changes. Do we have anything like that on the internet? Not anything that's so so specific to the devices themselves. I mean, I think a device should be paranoid generally, not accepting control or updates or willingness to release software or uh, let's say release data, unless it has good reason to believe that the party that's asking it for the data or commanding it to do something is legitimate, which means probably and almost certainly some kind of cryptographic exchange digital signature style thing that has to be worked out. But then that leads to all kinds of questions about how easy or hard is it to configure the device to do that. I worry about scenarios like I have a house full of this stuff and I've invited guests over. How long does it take me to introduce my guests to the house and give the guests the authority to turn the lights off and on and flush the toilet? And then when they leave, how do I make sure that I revoke the privileges so that the 15-year-old in the family doesn't do something remotely that I would regret? So there are these scenarios that I think are not adequately addressed. We don't have uh, common agreements yet, even that these are the right problems to solve, let alone how to solve them and with what protocols. So my guess is it's going to be chaotic for a while. But the consumers eventually are going to get the point that they don't want equipment in the house that isn't reliable, that they don't consider to be safe, that fails to work if the internet isn't available. The whole series of expectations will eventually rise to the surface and either the producers will have to respond or their products won't be uh, purchased and they will go out of business. So there will be pressure in the long run to solve the problems, to achieve standards and everything else, but not before a fair amount of turmoil will be experienced in the market. What if everything didn't talk to the internet? What if each house had its own intranet and then your platform provider let it out and did something like that? Does that feel like a viable solution? It's not an open web thing, but... I think it depends a great deal on what it is you are expecting this class of object to do. I mean, if you want remote monitoring, for example, when you're away and you want to be apprised of what's going on, or how about in an emergency, the house is on fire, the fire department's on the way, shouldn't they have access to the webcams and the temperature sensors in order to find people who have collapsed or places where the fire is obviously burning the brightest? And then you don't want them to have access after the fire is out and so on and so forth. So I can understand local communication, which I think is needed. You don't want to have to go all the way out to the public internet and back again in order to control the house. So there clearly needs to be an internal communications capability. And that introduces the possibility of a hub or a controller or something 
There's an organization that's called IOTX, which is trying to help people with the disparate protocols find a way to allow interaction to happen anyhow, maybe with protocol translation, which everybody gags at, including me, or with some other mechanism, so that uh, even in the presence of all the diversity, it's possible to organize things in a more or less consistent way at some layer in the architecture, at some level of abstraction. So I don't think that isolating things in the house exclusively it does solves the problem and certainly doesn't satisfy many people's expectations of what this can do. What about the industrial IoT? How should I think about that differently than maybe the smart home? Well, several things occur to me. One of them is that in an, in an industrial setting, you may have tens of thousands of these devices, but you're operating at a scale where you presumably can have expertise in the company or accessible to the company that can help organize, configure, maintain, update. You also could have some discipline within the organization about access control, for example. You might insist on two-factor authentication or other kinds of mechanisms that limit the potential hazards of abuse or invasion of the system. And so it's the usual thing. In in a corporate setting, in a government setting, in an institutional setting where there's some top-down control, you may be able to introduce practices that make the system a lot more safe and secure. In a household setting, though, it's another story because we're ordinary mortals and we're not very disciplined, and so the system has to help us behave better or at least prevent our worst behavior from damaging ourselves uh, unintentionally. It's true. Sometimes I use the same password for two apps, and I feel every time I'm like, oh, that's the wrong thing. Okay, so this has felt a little, not dark, but just hard. Let's talk about what makes this worth it. So what are the opportunities? What does this really enable? So there are several things that I am firmly uh, convinced will make a big difference. The first one, an obvious one, is that with the right kinds of equipment and monitoring and sensing, you can do a better job of energy use and other resource use in a house or in an office building. And you see, you know, LED, you know, lead buildings are getting more and more popular these days. Partly because there there's some tax advantages and other things about investing in this kind of structure. So at home, you may save money on your resources bills. Another possibility is remote monitoring for safety. And here we get into whether it's access control, security, or fire prevention, or fire detection, and so on. The third possibility, which is perhaps a bit more interesting is that uh, you may be able to use a a home which has been outfitted with this capability to monitor your own health. Uh, And here we get the notion of continuous monitoring, where the information can be accumulated, where an estimate can be made of your normal condition, so that if you drift away from normal, that can be a signal that says maybe you should go, go to the doctor or call the hospital or call 911 or do something, so or take your vitamin pill. So this idea of being able to gather information and assemble it and make it useful, even to the extent of your own health, is a is a valuable outcome. I often wonder whether or not uh, having a house that's fully instrumented can also make it a lot more comfortable and adaptable. There are lots of attempts now being made for voice interaction to control the house. Some of it is almost certainly uh, stimulated by old Star Trek episodes where you could say, you know, dim the lights and play Beethoven or something. I am still a little unsure about how successful all the voice interactions are going to be, but some of the applications are cute. 
On the other hand, being able to get the house to adapt to your preferences in an easy way, as opposed to running around flipping, you know, 65 different switches, uh, has a certain amount of appeal to it. It is totally awesome. I have many voice settings that are like party mode, dinner mode. So we've talked a lot about kind of cool things that happen, standards and architecture. Let's talk about how we're going to pull this together in a way that works for the consumer and the possibility of regulation. Because there's a lot of data running around, there's security issues. What role should the government play in this whole realm? Well, of course, the normal reaction in the private sector is the government should go away. Uh, I think that's not going to be possible to sustain. People are going to be relying increasingly on these devices full of software. And at some point, there are going to have to be some kind of certifications the software, let alone the hardware. So we need an, a cyber underwriters lab or something like that. I think that there may also be um, potential liabilities associated with negligent deployment of equipment like this. For example, the, the situation that Dyn Corporation found itself in when whatever it was, a half a million webcams were all aimed at the same destination. How could this possibly happen? Well, there wasn't any access control built into the devices, or the access control was widely known. Username and passwords were constant and the same everywhere. So assembling a botnet was no big deal. I consider that to be irresponsible. However, to be fair to everybody, the people who made those things probably weren't thinking about the possibility that they were all online, all at the same time, all on the internet, and therefore compromisable. And yet, we saw what happened. So just like seatbelts didn't get worn until the law said, if we catch you driving without a seatbelt or if there's an accident without a seatbelt, there will be consequences. Same is true of smoking. So you find all of the persuasions about good behavior are backed up by some kind of incentive. And I want to use the word incentive here and not necessarily legislation or regulation. When we have incentives to do the right thing, then generally speaking, the right thing happens. The question is, how do we formulate the incentives in order to get that to happen? And how do we agree on what the right thing is? I thought you were going to tell me. Uh, <laughs> one of the other things that I think is worth considering here is those cameras, many of them were manufactured in China. So even if we had the right incentive, people in China, they don't have necessarily that incentive. So there's an internationalization effort here that I don't know what to think about it. Well, there have been a, a lot of discussions about international cyber uh, agreements on one side to agree not to attack each other's basic infrastructure and on the other not to ship, you know, hazardous gear. A couple of thoughts come to mind. One of them is the, the certification question might actually have some uh, salience here. Suppose that you couldn't sell a product unless you could at least reveal the source code to some party who agrees to keep it uh, private but still has the let's say, the credibility to have said, we ran it through a series of tests, we did analyses and everything else, we believe this device to be safe. Another observation is to uh, inhibit the device's ability to communicate outside of the, of the house, except under certain conditions, for example. This gets back to your earlier thought about a, a local connectivity that doesn't extend outside the house. So I think that there are, are serious supply chain questions that arise. An example of a scenario that really worries me is somebody building a device, throwing in a random piece of a source uh, operating system code, and not particularly caring about whether it'll ever be maintained or not. Just I just want to sell the device. And so that leaves another open question in my mind about commitments to maintaining 
these kinds of devices over a period of time because some people will buy them with the expectation that they're going to work for a period of a decade or more. And what if the company goes out of business, you know, within six months because it wasn't a popular product and yet you want to keep it and use it? So maybe there are escrow arrangements with regard to the source code. There, I think there's room for quite a bit of domestic and potentially international exploration of agreements. The United States, because of its extraordinary consuming power, uh, is, an, is a place where there will be even higher risk factors just because we acquire all this stuff and use it. That's less true in places that are not spending as much of their discretionary income on gadgets like this. Over a long period of time, all these gadgets will become available to everybody thanks to reduced costs. Unless, of course, it turns out that we've all concluded that these things are so hazardous and dangerous and annoying and they don't work the way they're supposed to anyway, that we all decide to hell with it and we'll go back to light switches. You could pry my light switches from my cold, dead hands. <laughs> all right. So given all of this, do you have any smart devices in your home? I have a few. My wife uh, would prefer, frankly, to have a 747's worth of light switches and dimmers so that she knows exactly which bulb it is that she's controlling. On the other hand, I've got a few Lutron, you know, programmable things, which I like a lot because you poke a button and it does, you know, a setup for you. I have a custom entertainment system, when, and that's a good example of hazardous, right? Because when it doesn't work, I have to call up a guy who lives 100 miles away to come out and fix it. It's a good example of why customization may not necessarily be the smartest thing in the world. I have uh, some of the uh, Alphabet Nest thermostats in the house, uh, and I also have a system uh, to monitor uh, the temperature, humidity, and light levels in every room in the house. It's a mesh network running six low-pan, Every five minutes, it dumps that information to a server in the basement. And the wine cellar is instrumented so that if the temperature goes up to 60 degrees Fahrenheit, I get a, an SMS in my mobile telling me my wine is warming up. So, and the next step is to put RFID uh, tags on all the bottles so I can do an instantaneous inventory to make sure that when I'm away, no bottle has left the cellar without my permission. So the answer is we have a little bit of automation in the house. Did you build your light and temperature sensing and your wine cellar stuff yourself? No, uh, this is not me in the garage with a soldering iron. I actually got commercial equipment in every case. Can I ask what you used for that? Yeah, you mean whose equipment did I use? Well, let's see. The thermostats come from Nest. The um, temperature sensor and mesh network came from ArchRock, which was acquired by Cisco Systems. The RFID detector was a startup company when I bought, invested in and bought some of their early equipment. The uh, Lutron controls are commercial uh, and programmed by the same guy that did my entertainment system. The entertainment system itself is a kind of dog's breakfast of equipment coming from a variety of manufacturers all lashed together uh, and being uh, driven by fairly sophisticated software package. So it's it's all commercial, but some of it is, um, let me say, custom built. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Well, I'm happy to have a chat. I'm just hoping that we have a chat 10 years from now. Hopefully, I'll still be around 10 years from now to, to assess where are we in this space and which, which swamp have we driven into this time. I'm hoping we're flying free and easy because I'm that kind of optimist. <laughs> well, so am I, but I'm trying to be pragmatic today. Oh, don't do that. All right. Well, that's it for another episode of the Internet of Things podcast. 
please join us next week when we have another amazing show for you. And if in the meantime, you are hankering for some IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at Stacy on IoT.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.